Well, hey, good morning, church. Uh, really good to be here with you this Sunday morning. Uh, if you're new here, welcome. I'm so glad that you're worshiping with us. Uh, my name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors on staff, and I do have the privilege of sharing uh, the Word of God with you this morning. Uh, you know, last week we started in this Advent series called Christmas Essentials. And what we're trying to accomplish in this sermon series is really try to show you that Christmas is not just a fairy tale. Christmas is not just a wishful thinking, but Christmas is real. Uh, throughout uh, Advent, historically, the church has always talked about these four aspects of Christmas. That's hope, joy, love, and peace. And what we're trying to do in this series is to really show you that this hope and this love, joy, peace that we're talking about isn't just wishful thinking, but rather it's tangible, it's real, and we can actually believe in it. Um, and so an example of this is, uh, let's take, for example, the Seahawks, all right? I love the Seahawks, um, and uh, I hope you do too. Uh, go Seahawks, right? Um, uh, but uh, last week, they lost to the Oakland Raiders. What a terrible loss. The Raiders are just a terrible, I'm sorry if you're from, uh, sorry, not the Oakland Raiders, for the Las Vegas Raiders. Sorry if you're from Las Vegas or from Oakland or, um, but it was a terrible loss. They're not doing very well today, uh, this year, and, uh, but we lost. And, but during the game, I was like, okay, I, I hope we can win. I hope, like there's a chance, right? I believe in uh, Geno Smith. I believe in Pete Carroll. I believe in Tyler Lockett. I believe in DK Metcalf. Like, like come on, like we can do it. But then ultimately we lost. And so that hope was nothing. It was just wishful thinking on my part. But real hope rather looks sort of like this. It's like me finding out, um, you know, seeing week one of the NFL when the Seahawks beat the Denver Broncos. And I found out after the fact, right, because I don't watch football on Sundays, right? I have to watch it after the fact. But, I, but somebody told me we beat the Denver, or sorry, it was a Monday, uh, sorry, it was a Thursday night game. Um, but let's just say I found out uh, beforehand or afterhand that they had won and they didn't watch the game. And they said, that, you know, the Seahawks beat the Denver Broncos. Then when I go back and I watch it, I watch it very differently than if I watch it live because I know that they've already won. I know that the victory is there. And so whether or not we fumble the ball, whether we throw interceptions, whether there's highs or lows, my hope is not fake. It's not wishful thinking. It's real because I know the end of the game. We win. And in the same way, what Christmas tells us is that we win. God wins. God defeats death. He defeats injustice. He, he, he brings love and grace and joy and peace and mercy and hope. And this hope is not wishful thinking, but it's real. And this is what we want to show you during this Christmas season. That death is not the end. That death is not victorious. That death does not have the final say, but rather Jesus does. And he wins at the very end of it all. And so what I want to do today is last week, as we, as we talked about, last week I just tried to show you that God exists. Okay, like uh, whether or not you believe in uh, this God, right? But I just wanted to show you that God is real, that God exists. And so we looked at creation. Uh, but today what I want to ask is this question. I want to ask, why should I believe then that this Jesus is God? Why should I believe that this Jesus is God? Why should I believe the Christmas story is real? And so we're going to be looking at a passage in Acts, uh, the book of Acts chapter 17. We're going to be looking between the verses of 22 to 34. So at this time, if you're able, would you rise? We're going to be reading this passage. To, um, uh, this passage, uh, I'll say at the end of it, this is the word of the Lord. If you could respond with thanks be to God, I'll pray for us and then I'll seat you after the reading. Uh, we stand and we do all of these things not because they're magical or mysterious, but because rather they're just simple. We want to honor the reading of God's word because we believe they are holy. Uh, and so we stand as we read them. But let me go ahead and read this for us. I'll pray and then I'll seat you. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, and mind you, that word Areopagus can also be translated Mars Hill, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. 
For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and, life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we not, ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given us assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Let me go ahead and pray and I'll seat you. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for these words. Lord, we pray that your spirit would be here with us. Help us to feel your presence, Lord. Help us to know, not just with our minds, Lord, but with our hearts, that you are present, that you are real, Lord, that your hope, your love, your joy, and your peace, God, are ever-present before us. Lord, we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. Well, if you're taking notes, you can write these three points down. I typically have three points to my sermons. Uh, the first point is one truth. Uh, the second point is uh, one resurrection. And then the final point is uh, one hope. All right, one truth, one resurrection, and one hope. You know, I was born and raised in a Christian home, and my mother was a Christian. My, my father wasn't uh, necessarily a Christian until uh, I hit my teenage years. But nonetheless, my mom uh, made us go to church, and she made my dad go to church. So we were kind of raised in a Christian home. But I remember uh, during a part of my life uh, just really struggling with some doubts. And one of the doubts was this, like, like what, what makes me think that I have the right religion? Right, like, I could have been born in Iran. I could have been born in Saudi Arabia. And if I had been, then most likely I'd probably be a Muslim. Or what if, what if I'd been born in Tibet? Or what if I'd been born in Thailand? I'd most likely be a Buddhist. Or what if I'd been born, say, uh, you know, in, in, uh, in India? I'd, I'd be a Hindu. Um, you know, most likely, of course, not, that doesn't, it's not deterministic, but most likely. And but for some reason, like I happen to be born in a household where Christianity happens to be the religion and I happen to believe the right religion and I'm saying that all the other religions are wrong. And, and this kind of seemed arrogant to me. This seemed really arrogant. And I thought, well, how can I claim that? That seems uh, not only arrogant, but it seems like I'm so lucky, but it also kind of feels like it's unfair. And it, there were all these mixed emotions inside of me. And so I thought, okay, here's the pathway that I need to take then. I need to go ahead and study all the religions of the world. I've got to go ahead and study uh, Islam and, and really worship and pray to Allah and see if he does anything. Uh, I need to go and explore Hinduism and all their practices uh, and see if Hinduism is real. Uh, I've got to go and meditate on, on Buddhist principles and see if Buddhism is real. I've got to go and experiment, in other words, with all these different religions in order to find out what the truth is. 
And yet, lo and behold, you know, I, I move on in life, and guess what? I get lazy, right? Like all of you, right? I get lazy, and I'm like, well, that doesn't, you know, I don't know. It seems too hard to do all these things, so I guess I'm just stuck with the right one. Um, but, but here's what the Apostle Paul is doing here, and I want to show this to you because I, I, I think this is fascinating. The Apostle Paul lived in a time very much like ours. Uh, Athens, if you don't know, this is where he's at. This is where this whole story is taking place is in the city of Athens. And Athens was uh, a place of intellectual uh, uh, primacy, if you would. Uh, I mean, this is where uh, Socrates, Plato, uh, this is where, um, you know, this was kind of the, the, the home of uh, uh, Socrates and Plato, right? This was the adopted home of, uh, say, uh, Aristotle and um, uh, uh, of Epicurus and, and Zeno, who was the founder of Stoicism, right? These were the, 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 the founding places of democracy, right? So this is where intelligence was at its peak and it's at its height. And here in the most intellectual city of all places, there were hundreds of religions, Literally, like, I mean, uh, there are literally, mil like, hundreds and hundreds of temples in Athens, and there are hundreds of religions, hundreds of gods, hundreds of documents, hundreds of priests and prophets and miracles, all of these things. And Paul is speaking in this context. And Paul here, right, in this place of cultured rationality, right, where there's a plethora of gods, it says this in verse 16 and 17. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. In other words, his spirit kind of got angry because he saw all these uh, uh, other religions. And within him, he saw that the city was full of idols, full of other religions. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. That word reasoned is actually two words in the Greek. They're kind of, it's a compounding word. And it literally means through logic. Through logic, Paul actually reasons with these people why it is that Jesus Christ is real and alive. And I want you to notice this too. This, is, this doesn't come out as clearly as you'd like it to because we're, we're just modern people. We don't understand the context. But, and, I, and I would like to show this to you, but it would take me far too long. But what you should know is that Luke is trying to portray Paul in this passage as a kind of new Socrates. And again, I would love to point out all the different features of this, but you just have to trust me. Uh, he's what, One of the things that he's trying to communicate is that Paul could go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Socrates. That's how rationed and reasonable and logical Paul is. See, from the earliest days of Christianity, Christianity has always been a religion of reason. It's never been blind faith. It's never been, hey, just trust. Yeah, just trust. Okay, there's heaven after life, right? There's heaven after this, right? Oh, you just got to believe there's a God. It's never been that way. It's always been a reasonable, rational faith. Uh, in fact, uh, historians, in fact, if you go and read this book called The Weirdest People on Planet Earth by Joseph Henrik, uh, one of the things he talks, and he's an atheist, he talks about how education, the maths, the sciences, and literature, and, and reading and writing were all spread because of Christians, like, it, it's, it's not because of uh, Greek influence or Roman influence, right? It's because of Christianity. The more Christians you have, the more churches you had, the more churches you had, the more hospitals you had, the more hospitals you had, the more education, schools, things like that. I mean, education spread because of Christianity. Christianity has never been anti-science, anti-reason. And I'm not sure how this sentiment came about, but my guess is maybe something like this, right? I don't know if you've ever been in fifth grade. 
my fifth grade teacher's name was Mrs. Schrader. And I remember, you know, Mrs. Schrader would say something like, hey, everyone, be quiet, okay? Settle down, guys. Uh, uh, you know, if not, then I'm going to, uh, the whole class is on timeout, all right? And, and Billy Bob over there is sitting there, like, making all this noise, like, you know, and he's being goofy and all this stuff. And I'm like, shh, be quiet, right? Settle down, because the whole class. And then Mrs. Schrader says, hey, you know what? Like, you guys are all punished now because of Billy Bob there, you know, because he was doing some weird stuff, right? And, and doing all this stuff. The whole class gets punished because of one person. And I feel like Christianity is the same way. I feel like we got all punished because of a few uh, exceptional people who were a little bit louder than the rest of us. For example, there are Christians in the world that say, you know what, like I'm not going to take my child into the hospital because they have diabetes because God is going to heal them. Like I, I don't believe in science. I don't believe in religion. Like I don't believe like all of this. Lo like, God is going to heal my child of diabetes so I'm not going to take them in. And so this child dies and then they make the front page of the New York Times. But this is not Christianity. This is a few crazy exceptions within us that, that then make the loudest voice, that then get the most public, uh, you know, publicity because, let's be honest, our secular world is a little bit anti-Christian in that sense. And they love these kinds of stories. And yet, here Paul shows us from the very, very beginning of Christianity, it's been a, uh, it's been a religion of reason and of logic. And so let's look back, let's go to now Paul's argumentation here. What does he say to them? He essentially says something like this, okay? Look at verses 22 to 23. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now, that's not a, that's not a commendation. That's not an encouragement to them. He's basically saying, like, you call yourselves intellectuals, but actually you're the most superstitious of all. And he tells them why. He says, verse 23, for, I passed, as, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So he's saying this, look, you guys are admitting that you're blind. You're admitting that you don't know who God is. But he's saying, so if you're going to admit that, okay, then let me tell you, I can see. I see very clearly. If you're saying you're blind, then let me tell you, I've seen. Let me tell you what I've seen. And I want you to notice what Paul doesn't do here. Paul doesn't go about disproving all the other religions out there because there were hundreds. But rather, Paul makes a case for one religion. And Paul can do this because it makes logical sense. Oftentimes, we think of religions as preferences. Like we do shopping, right? For example, let's just say we're shopping for a car, right? It's, that's a preference. And so we should go and shop around. We should go look at Honda, Toyota, Subaru, right? We should go look at all these different cars and go search around, go shopping because it's a preference. And we got to find the best one for us, okay? But religion is not a preference. It's a truth claim. It's a claim about reality. And so let me give you a truth claim. Right? The truth claim is this, okay? Joe Biden is the president of the United States. That's a truth claim. That's not a preference. I can't say, oh, I prefer. No, no, no. He's the president of the, that's truth. This is what religion is. And contrary to popular belief, not all religions can be simultaneously true. They, they can't be because they all contradict each other in their truth claims. Let me give you an example of this, okay? All religions claim that there is, a, that there is somebody at the top of the universe. If there were, there's a president of the universe, if you would. And all of them compete. They're all saying very contradictory things. Right, let me, let me give you an example of this, okay? I'm going to talk about something political, but I'm, I'm not trying to make a political case. I'm trying to give you the feelings behind having contradictory truth claims, okay? In 2020, there was an election that happened, okay? Do you guys know where I'm going with this? One president won the election. The other president said, no, you didn't. I won. The election was rigged, okay? 
what they were competing on was a truth claim of who the president of the United States was. And guess what happened to our nation? It went into chaos. It went into turmoil. Because that's not a small difference. That's a truth claim. That's either this guy's president or this guy's president. Like you can't have it both ways. Like they're contradictory in nature. And Muslims claim that Allah is God. Christians claim Jesus Christ is, uh, is one person of a trinity who's one in nature, but in three persons. Jews claim that Yahweh is the only God. Right? Hindus claim that there are hundreds of gods. If you would, hundreds of presidents of the, United, or of, of the universe. And, 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 um, and Buddhists claim there is no gods. There is no president. Right? We're, just all like, we're just all supposed to tame this nirvana. Okay? So you see, these are fundamental differences. These are contradictory. You can't say the sun is both hot and cold. It's, it's a truth, right? It's either hot or it's cold. You can't have both. And in the same way, right, not all religions can simultaneously be true because they are contradictory in the truth claims that they are actually giving you. Look, and this is why one of the reasons why people who say all religions lead to God are faulty in their thinking. This is illogical, if you would. The sun cannot be both hot and cold, and neither can all religions be correct because they contradict each other in addition right I, I suppose that one of the reasons and this is why I would be you know lean towards this is because uh, you know the reason why people lean towards saying all religions are correct is because in essence what they want to believe is that well like you're being so arrogant you know you're claiming that you have the one true religion but how can you claim that that's such an arrogant position but but Tim Keller who is an author and pastor in New York City would also argue that actually saying all religions lead to heaven is another arrogant position let me, give you, let me give you an illustration that he gives, right? He says this, he, uh, a lot of people who believe that all roads lead to the divine or all religions are touching the divine. One illustration that they give is of an elephant, right? Uh, imagine the elephant is the, the divine being and uh, one religion is touching the tail, one religion is touching the, the leg, and one religion is touching the trunk, okay? And uh, every religion says something a little bit different, right? Oh, well, you know, the, the elephant or the divine feels like a tail, okay? It feels like a, like a snake or like a worm or something, okay? Um, well, this religion says, well, religion feels like a tree trunk, right? It feels really heavy, and but they're feeling the leg, right? And this other religion says, well, the divine sort of feels like a like a hose right it feels like a big trunk or something you know uh, and and they're all experiencing different things of the divine but 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 they're all touching the divine so that's why they're all true but Keller would retort and say well guess what what you're saying is that all the world religions are blind but you have sight everyone is blind everyone is at a disadvantage but you you have the truth and it's just as arrogant as a position in in addition, not only is it an arrogant pos uh, position, but it disrespects all religions, right? Imagine if I, imagine if you had this encounter, right? Somebody came up to you and said, hey, you know what? Uh, like, I don't care if you're Chinese, Japanese, or Korean. Like, you're all the same to me. That's racist. Why? Because it, 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 it smashes all the uniqueness of each culture. It says Chinese people don't have their own history, values, and culture. Korean people, you don't have your own history, value, and culture. Japanese people, you don't have all your history, uh, you know, culture, and values. Uh, you're just all the same because you look the same. That's a kind of racism. And in the same way, if we say all the religions are the same, we squash all their uniqueness. We're saying, hey, you know what? This is a kind of like racism towards all religions. We're not respecting them for what they are. We're trying to change them into something that they aren't really. Well, so then maybe this is the, the counterpoint then. Okay, well then, if, if that's the case, then I just believe all religions are false then. I just believe all religions are false. Yeah, and that, that's certainly a position that you can take. But he, here's, here's another point. That's just as exclusive. That's just as arrogant. You're saying, again, I can see and everyone else is blind. But here's an additional point, okay? And I said this last week. You have to doubt your doubts. 
And you have to see, right, that is a truth claim. That is a faith claim. You don't know that for certain. You need evidence. And if you require Christianity to produce all this evidence for why it's true, then you certainly have to produce all this evidence for why you believe there are no gods, why there are no religions, why all of them are false. You should, uh, you should scrutinize your beliefs just as much as you do Christianity or any other religion at that. And so look, here, let me kind of put everything together again, okay? There can only be one. There can only be one truth. I don't know if you guys remember, you guys might be too young. Some of you might be old enough to remember. There was a movie called The Highlander. Do you guys remember this? There can only be one. No? You guys remember? Nobody. Oh, man. Okay. Well, there's a movie where there's these people who are called Highlanders. They live eternally. The only way they can die is you chop off their heads. And, uh, and, but there can only be one. And so they all fight each other and try to chop each other's heads off. It's, it's actually a great movie. They're gonna, I, think, I heard this, they're going to remake it. Okay. Um, but in the same way, there can only be one. Right? There can only be one. Either all religions are wrong or one of them is right. Therefore, all the other ones are wrong. Right? It's like if you go into a, con uh, let's just say you're a detective and you're, you're you know, you, 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 you have video surveillance of somebody robbing a, a store. And it's one person robbing a store. Okay, they're masked. And you have 10 suspects before you. Well, if you find out one suspect did it, then you can rule out all the other ones, can't you? And in the same way, this is what Paul is doing. Now, here's one of the hardest truths to swallow, okay, and it's this. Well, what I'm really getting at is this, right, that truth, and, and this is going to come off a little bit harsh, but, it, but it's true, right, which is truth does not care about how we feel. I know it, it sucks. I really wish, right, like I really wish, for example, I wish bacon were healthy, man. I wish I could eat as much bacon as humanly possible and it would not make me bigger, okay? But truth is, if I eat too much bacon, I will never see my kids ever again, okay, because you know what will happen. I would love to believe fried chicken is good for your health, but it's not. It's not good for my health. I would love to believe all sorts of things, but truth is truth, and sometimes it's really, really hard to swallow. And so this leads us to our second point, one resurrection. Okay, look, I want you to look at what Paul does here. He doesn't make some long, elaborate uh, uh, plea for, uh, for anything. We're really, he just makes a simple case. And his case is this, right? He, he goes on this long rant about talking about who this God is, what he looks like, what he, what he is like, right? He, he says he's not worshipped in temples. Like he's, he, he doesn't need anything from you. He actually gives you life and breath and, 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 and he's in control. He's sovereign. He's all powerful, right? He's all these things. But then he comes down to the evidence and he says, look, I'll tell you why I believe this God is real and why all of your gods are false. And look at what he says in verse 31. He finally gives his proof and his evidence. He says in verse 31, because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance. Okay, so there's assurance to this faith that we have that this God is going to come back and judge, okay? And he says to all by raising him from the dead, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It all comes back to this historic event of the resurrection of jesus christ our faith hinges upon this one historic event and no other religion is like this right other religions they go into a cave they hear from god they have this divine revelation and you can't really question it you can be like okay well or, or you wander into a desert and you get hungry and you fast and you thirst and then you receive this divine revelation and you can't really question that right but here in christianity we base our belief on a historic event No religion claims that God came in the flesh, died for our sins, and then rose again from the grave. So let me make the case for the resurrection a little bit simpler for us, okay? Because everything hinges on, on an event, listen to this, okay? It either happened or it didn't happen. And that's the truth, right? It either happened or it didn't happen. 
And if it did happen, then love, joy, peace, hope, all of these things we just talked about are absolutely real. They're absolutely true. They're absolutely good. But if they didn't happen, let me tell you then, somebody made it up. That's the only thing that could have happened. Somebody made it up. Somebody lied. Somebody invented something, right? Somebody had to have concocted this because it is clearly a lie. It's about an event. So either it happened or it didn't happen. And if it didn't happen, then somebody lied. Look, what is 100% factual and all historians, Christian and non-Christians agree, is that Jesus Christ was absolutely a real person. This cannot be debated any longer. And the reason why they no longer debate this is because we have so many sources, historical sources, outside of the New Testament that attest to Jesus' life, his death, and even uh, him claiming to be the Messiah. And so what all historians agree with, whether Christian or non-Christian, is that Jesus was real. Jesus claimed to do miracles. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. He died on a cross, and he claimed to rise from the grave. And his followers all claim this. This is absolutely 100% true. And part of this is, again, as I mentioned, there was a historian in the first century who lived around the time of Jesus. And he was a non-Christian historian. He was a Jewish historian. But he attests to this in the first century. Listen to what Josephus writes in the first century in one of his most famous works, The Antiquities. Listen to what he says. At this time, the time of Pilate, there was a wise man who was called Jesus. His conduct was good and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die, but those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. In fact, there are 10 non-Christian sources about Jesus outside of the New Testament within a 150-year span. And in fact, if you add up all the sources of Jesus Christ, uh, including the New Testament sources, we actually have more sources about Jesus Christ than we do about Tiberius Caesar. And yet no one ever questioned Tiberius Caesar was alive or he ruled Rome. So at the end of the day, what people really disagree about is the resurrection. And quite frankly, Peter Wagner, who's another uh, apologist, he says something to this effect. He says, look, the only reason why people disagree about the resurrection is because it was miraculous. But the amount of historical evidence we have for it, like if it was like the Battle of Gettysburg, like it, it would just be known. It would just be accepted because of how much evidence we have for it. And yet people don't want to accept it because of its miraculous nature. And so again, either the resurrection happened or it didn't. And if it didn't, it must have been invented by someone. Look, I think sometimes we think as modern people that looking backwards, like hindsight, right? Oh, like that was such a clever invention. Or let's just say you don't believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you don't believe he's God. Well, it's like, whoa, that, that, that seems really, really clever, really, really imaginative to have invented the resurrection. Because look, it, it kept the movement going, right? So clearly somebody had to have invented it. And yet N.T. Wright, who's a world-renowned New Testament scholar as well as a historian, and he stands toe-to-toe -to -toe with any Christian or non-Christian historian, uh, he wrote a massive work called the, uh, the Resurrection of the Son of God. Um, you can read this for yourself if you like. It's long. It's about 800 pages or so. Um, but he really makes a case for the resurrection. But I'll try to summarize what he's essentially saying. Uh, one, of his, uh, one of the major arguments that he makes in this book, which is this. He says, humans are, are clever. We're imaginative. We, we have a lot of imagination, okay? And, and our, our imaginations are quite powerful, okay? But at the same time, our imaginations are stuck within the time and place that we were born in. Does that make sense? Like you can't imagine things outside of your time and place. Your imagination can only take you so far. So let me give you an example of this, okay? Um, 
I believe, okay, uh, ancient Koreans, ancient Chinese, and ancient Japanese people all had noodles and milk, okay? Uh, they could have churned the milk, right, made it rot, make some cheese, right? And then they could have brought these elements together to make something wonderful called mac and cheese, right? They could have. Very possible. But there's no way they would have done this. Why? Because that's not the trajectory of where they were going. This is not the thinking that Korean, Chinese, or Japanese folks had back in those days. They weren't trying to create mac and cheese. The, the culture wasn't moving in that direction. This is why we don't see mac and cheese in ancient China, ancient Korea, or ancient Japan, even though they may have had the elements for it. Because our imaginations can only take us so far. It, it's, it's always bound to a specific time and a specific place. And what N.T. Wright is essentially arguing for is that it would have been virtually historically impossible for these people to invent the resurrection. Because that's not where they were moving. That's not what they were doing. And so one of the things that he highlights, and one of the things that I want to highlight from his book, is that you have to imagine this. There were a dozen Messiah uh, episodes. Jesus Christ was not the only person claiming to be Messiah. There were, there were dozens and dozens, and there are 14, in fact, that we know for sure existed and lived and claimed to be Messiah, okay? 14 at the very least, okay? But much more, dozens if not. And all of them were charismatic figures just like Jesus. They all rallied together a big following and they all claimed, to, uh, they all claimed or had people claim about them to be the Messiah who was going to bring about the kingdom of God. And one of the differences between uh, Jesus and all of these other Messiah movements is one is that Jesus said the way the kingdom of God is going to be established is you turn the other cheek. You don't fight back. You let the Romans slap you. And if they slap you, you turn the other cheek. But the other 14 messiahs were like, no, 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 no. We got to attack. We got to create insurrections. We got to overcome them through war, violence, swords, and blood. We're going to do it that way. And yet every single 14 messiahs, okay, all of these 14 messiahs died because they started these insurrections against the most powerful government on the face of the planet. And guess what Rome did? They squashed it immediately. And every single one of these 14 messiahs died. But do you know what happened? None of these 14 messiahs and none of the other messiahs that we know about ever claimed to rise from the grave. Right? If it was such a clever move, right, more and more people should have done this. They should have claimed the messiah rose from the dead. But here's what they did. In order to keep the movement alive, do you know what they would do? Because that's what happened, by the way, right? If, if somebody creates a movement and then they die, usually the movement dies. I'll give you an example. Steve Jobs. Right? I'm, I'm, Apple's not dead. I'm sorry if you work for Apple, okay? But Apple's not dead. But Think Differently is dead. Or you guys remember the whole campaign where it was like, think differently. Apple's so creative. Apple, sorry, not that creative anymore, right? Like, it's kind of like everyone else. It died when he died. Same thing, messiahs. When they die, their movement dies. People don't call the messiah after they die. Why? Because they prove that they're not the messiah. If they were the messiah, they'd still be alive. And so what they essentially did was to keep these movements alive, there was one move that they would go to. And this one move was this. They would find the successor. It was usually a close friend or it was usually a disciple or a close family member who was just as charismatic as this messianic figure. And N.T. Wright says this, did you know that Christians had somebody like this? It was such an easy out for them. It would have been the natural logical conclusion. They had somebody named James, the brother of Jesus. They could have easily shifted the movement towards him. James was a charismatic figure, a good teacher. Man, people loved him, man. Like they rallied around James, but they never ever do that. And he says, look, like, don't you see that this is evidence of silence? This is evidence of silence. Because they did not do that and because they went to the resurrection, the only thing we can think of is that the resurrection actually happened. 
because no one in their right mind ever moved towards the resurrection. They always moved towards a successor, a family member, a disciple, some other charismatic figure, but they never ever thought to raise the Messiah back from the dead. N.T. Wright calls this evidence from silence. He says that there's an episode of Sherlock Holmes uh, in, in one of the books uh, by Sir Arthur uh, uh, Doyle, Conan o uh, Doyle, anyhow. But, uh, but one of the episodes is that there's a horse that's stolen and Sherlock has to figure out who stole the horse. And, um, and what Sherlock notices is that when the thief comes in the middle of the night uh, to steal this hor horse, the dog which guards the horse never barks. And so what he deduces from the silence of the dog is that the owner must have stolen it because the only person that the dog would never bark at is the owner himself. And so Sherlock Holmes in this case deduces from silence that the owner actually stole the horse. And in the same way, the fact that the Christians never moved this movement over to James is evidence that Jesus Christ really rose from the grave. Let me, look. Look, after these Messiah figures died, no one else kept calling them Messiah. For example, there's a guy named um, uh, Simon Barkovka who was a Messiah figure, okay? He was a rabbi. And they would call him Messiah, Messiah Barkovka. But Messiah Bar after he died, guess what? They didn't call him Messiah. He died. He didn't fulfill it. He didn't fulfill Messiah. Look, let me ask you this. What would it take you to call me Lord and, and Savior? Like Eric, no. What would it take you to call me Lord and Savior? Because this is, these are specific titles that Jewish folks had for the Messiah. They, they said Christos, which is Messiah, and Kyrios, which is Lord, okay? What would it take you to call me Christos, Kyrios? I'll tell you nothing. You couldn't even invent something right now that would convince you. Even if I shot laser beams out of my eyes and destroyed that camera right now and I flew into the air and levitated and I said, look at me, I'm the Messiah, right? You would all be like, no, you ain't. You'd be like, that's pretty cool, but I, I, don't, I still don't believe. Even if I chopped off my arm and I regrew it in front of you, okay, you would still be like, that's pretty cool, but you wouldn't be like, you're Lord and Messiah of the whole world. You know what it would take for you to believe that I'm Lord and Messiah of the whole world? Something that you can't even imagine. <laughs> Something we can't even think of in this room. Even if we compiled all of our heads together, there's nothing that I could do to convince you of this. And this is exactly what happened to the early Christians. Something happened in their midst that they could not explain. Something they never even thought of. Something that they were like not even expecting or hoping. It was like, it was just out of the blue. And they were like, wow, this has to mean that he's Messiah. This has to mean he's Kyrios Christos. That he is Lord and Messiah of the whole earth. And this is what happened to the early followers of Jesus. Something happened that was so far outside their imaginations that the only conclusion they could have inferred or we can infer from this, is that Jesus Christ was raised from the grave. Look, this resurrection event wasn't witnessed by just one or two. It wasn't a hallucination. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, and this, this is one of the earliest creedal formulations. Now, creeds were put together by the church in order to teach the church basic theology because most of them could not read nor could they write. So they had to teach them to memorize theology. And one of the things that they taught them to memorize was this creed found in 1 Corinthians 15. And most scholars put it as one of the earliest creeds, non-Christian and Christians. Some, some as early as five years, some as late as like 20 years. But five years, think about that. Five years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. COVID was only like three years ago. We remember the beginning. It was crazy. It was only attack on two more years. That's it. 
There's no legend that could be devised from this, okay? And look at what Paul says here. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verses 6 and 7, he says, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. He's saying, look, you can go talk to these 500 individuals. They all saw him at one time. Though some have fallen asleep. So some of them did die, but most of them are still alive. So you can go talk to them. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. It was not mass hallucination. In fact, think about it like this. People died for this truth. I can understand, right? I, most of us can understand cult leaders, okay? Cult leaders, they devise lies. Why? Because there's something inherently good for them, right? They invent a lie so that they can get power, so that they can get money, or they can get sex. Let's just be real. And you know, all cult leaders tend to be men. Actually, not tend to. All of them are men, okay? I can't even think of one female cult leader, okay? Um, so men, just be careful, okay? Because you might become, you're, you're the prime candidate for cult leading, okay? Cult leaders... What, what happens? They, they lie, but then what? They get all these multiple wives. They get concubines. They get power. They get right authority. They get all this stuff. But what happens to the early apostles? They live like Jesus lived. Do you remember how Jesus lived? Jesus said, look, foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. In other words, foxes and birds have homes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And I'm homeless. You're going to be homeless. Does this sound like something like, oh, yeah, give, sign me up. I want that. The Apostle Paul remained single for his whole life. <laughs> there was no money involved. They were poor. They were destitute. And they had a Messiah who said, don't attack. Don't get power. Give up your power. Like serve other people. Watch other people. In fact, imitate me. Die. I died. I became poor. You die. You become poor. I, I mean, what, what kind of news? <laughs> and, like, and, and these people are like, yes, we're going to do this. Why? The only explanation is that the resurrection actually happened. Peter, John, James, they all were killed for their faith. They gave up their possessions. They fed the poor. They clothed the naked. Their fathers, their brothers, their mothers hated them for this. They lost everything. No one lies to get into trouble. People lie to get out of trouble. People don't lie so that they can get swindled out of their money. They lie so that they can swindle people out of their money. The best explanation is all of this is it's not invented. It just happened. And they're doing the natural conclusions of what, of what a resurrection would actually mean. They're living out of the natural conclusion of all of this. This leads us to our third and final point, one hope. You know, C.S. Lewis, he says something to this effect. He says... You can't call Jesus a moral teacher. You can't call him a good guy. Like, let's be real. Let's be logical about this. We cannot call Jesus a good guy. He's either a raving lunatic or he's a son of God. But, but don't, don't go about just calling him a good person. Because imagine if Oprah Winfrey one day said, I'm Lord and King of the universe. I'm going to die and rise again in three days. We'd be like, Oprah Winfrey, get out of here. You crazy. We would not be like, oh, you're a wise woman. No, 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 no. This is what Jesus claimed. Jesus claimed that he was Messiah. Jesus claimed that he was Lord of all. Jesus claimed that he would rise, he would die, and he would rise again in three days. And he did everything he said he would do. This is not the kind of person that you would call either just a good teacher. He's either a raving lunatic or he's a son of God himself. Look, friends, we live right now in one of the hopeless generations. I'm not saying that we're, like, I'm not calling us hopeless in the sense that, like, it's, it's a bad name. But it, it just is the truth. It's a matter of fact. Look at our movies. Look at the stories that we tell. 
every movie, every TV show is post-apocalyptic, is it not? It's set in the world that is based in hopelessness. Suicide and suicidal ideation are skyrocketing because people are hopeless. And every day, every week, in fact, I hear of more and more people experiencing deep, deep hopelessness. Global warming is becoming a larger and larger issue. I mean, I've never seen it snow in Seattle this early. My goodness. Inflation is up. Crime is up. There are wars at stake. I mean, there could be a world war tomorrow if Russia decides to just nuke Ukraine. I mean, things are tedious right now. And, and even people on the left and the right to their own politicians, like people on the left looking at left politicians and people on the right looking at right politicians are beginning to realize politicians have no power. They can't solve these problems. We're starting to understand that from our own sides. And then you have the biggest problem of all that we all know is coming, which is death itself. We live in such a hopeless time where we're like, we, we want to cure death. We want to cure disease, but ultimately death is coming. And death, my friends, is although we all know it's coming, it is one of the most unnatural things that any of us will ever experience or have experienced in our lives. You know, this week, you know, just by providence, there were two close people uh, to me that, that just happened to experience just crazy deaths in their, in, in their lives. One of my best friends, for example, his father just passed away unexpectedly, randomly. And, and there, was a, there was another death in, in our uh, community across the street. And I happened to encounter two men who were right at the point of just finding out about this news of this death. And they were really close to these people. And two times this week, I had to comfort two men who were in tears over the death of a loved one. I mean, I don't know if you've ever comforted somebody who's just, just found out that somebody really close to them has passed. But it is, I mean, you look at that and you're like, this is unnatural. Death is not supposed to happen. I mean, I've seen grown men just cry and cry and cry. And there's nothing that you can say to, 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 to make the pain go away. And everything inside of them just says, this is wrong. This is an injustice. Like, why do people have to die? And yet here's the crux of the matter. If Jesus says who he says it is, he is, it changes everything, friends. Do you understand? It changes everything. It means that at the end of time, death does not have the final say. You understand, if Jesus did not come back to life, if Jesus' resurrection did not ha happen, then death means that it has victory. It is the end of the story. Death wins. Your, your body goes into the ground, it rots, the worms eat it, and the end, that's it. And yet if Jesus Christ is alive and well, it means that, that God wins at the end. It means that death has no hold on us. It means that death has no victory. It means that Jesus is alive, he's well, he wins. And man, there is hope. There is real, tangible hope, friends. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, a very, very famous verse. He says, oh, death, where is your victory? He's staring death. He's like, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says it here in his sermon to these folks in Areopagus. He says in verse 31, Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Do you know what a judge does, friends? A judge makes everything right. 
And Jesus Christ will come back and make everything right. And he says you can have assurance of this, that he wins at the end of all time. Why? Because he's resurrected, he lives, he breathes, he moves, he sustains us, he's eternal, he's God. Look, friends, this hope that I'm telling you about, it's real hope. It's, it's not wishful thinking. Like, let me, let me, in the early church's time, right, starting from the second century and then the third century, there were two massive plagues, okay? We just went through on COVID, right? But these plagues, I'm telling you, if we were to see them, we would run for the hills because they were so scary. One of them was called the Cyprian Plague. The other one was called the Antonine Plague. And these plagues, man, if you read about it, they're scary, man. People's eyes are, are literally bleeding. They, they had to cut off people's limbs because of the infections. Like people went blind and then people died massively from these diseases. But you know what Christian said? Christian said, death, where's your sting? Death, where's your victory? Death, where are you? I'm not scared of you. We have real hope. And you know what happened? All of these people in these cities, right? You know, they did what we did. Socially, they social distanced. They were like, okay, forget about this. I'm going. Leave. Bye-bye. They ran away from the cities. They were like, I ain't taking care of you, bro. Like, you're sick. And if I touch you, I'm going to get sick. I'm going to die. See you later. And they, they peaced out. They left. They ran away from the cities. But Christians who had real hope, do you know what they did? They stayed and they washed and they tended. Because they knew these people had to die alone if they weren't there. And so they would literally wash, cleanse. They would pray. They would stay with these people as they were dying and guess what happened to these Christians they died too they caught the disease they bled they had to amputate stuff they were bleeding out of their eyes they died too but they were never afraid do you know why they were never afraid because they had hope they had real hope not a fake hope not a wishful thinking the resurrection happened and to them this was assurance that God is coming back to redeem all things there's a historian named Rodney Stark he's not a Christian he converted very recently, I think. But he actually details the rise of Christianity and he says this is why Christianity rose. Do you understand how small Christianity was? It was, it was on the backsides of one of the smallest, I, I told you there was hundreds of religions and these hundreds of religions were far bigger, far greater than Christianity ever was. I mean Judaism was the smallest religion out of all these religions and Christianity grew on the backside of this religion. It was the smallest outgrowth of it. And he says, do you know how Christianity became like a world religion? He said, it came to this moment of the plagues. When everybody ran, everyone showed that they have no hope, but Christians stayed. And they showed that their hope was a real hope, a real love, a real joy, a real peace. And these Christians died, but they died with love, joy, peace, and real hope, friends. And this is what the resurrection does for us. This hope can be yours. Look, if you're not a believer in here, I'm so glad you're worshiping with us. If you're not a believer listening to this online or you're listening to this via podcast at another time, I'm so glad you're listening. Don't you want this hope to be real? Let me just ask you that. Don't you want this hope to be real? Like, forget about all this knowledge stuff for a moment. Don't you want this to be real? And if so, just do me a favor and pray. Just ask Jesus, Jesus, would you come and make yourself real to me? Because I'll tell you this, I, I've never seen somebody convert just purely on knowledge. They've never converted because like they heard all this evidence and they were like, yeah, now it makes sense to me. In fact, sometimes knowledge hardens people's hearts. And so I'm not saying that I'm, I'm doing you a favor right now, but, but I, I'll tell you what, if, if you're going to really see Jesus, it's going to because he, he shows up. 
And maybe for some of you, it might, it might be like this. It might be, you might all of a sudden feel guilty about all the things you've done because you've contributed to the injustices of the world. And then simultaneously, you might feel the sense of love and forgiveness and hope once again come into your body. And if, that, if that's you, that's Jesus working in your heart, reminding you that even though you've committed evil, even though you're guilty, I forgive you, I've washed you, I've cleansed you because of my death on the cross. Or maybe you might feel this feeling of smallness, feeling like the universe is so big and mysterious and wide, and yet all of a sudden, you begin to feel known in this vast universe. That there is this God who knows you and loves you and cares about you. This is what Jesus can do. Or maybe for some of you, man, you're feeling this sense of hopelessness, but all of a sudden you begin to feel hope again. And you start to feel this real tangible hope that's Jesus coming to you. But whatever the case is, whether you're a skeptic, whether you're a Christian but you're doubting, whether you're a non-believer, I just want you to pray and ask Jesus to come and to make himself real to you. Because I believe that is the only way that you can know with absolute assurance that he's there, he's well, he's alive, he's breathing, and he's in control of everything. And friends, ultimately, he wins. Let's pray. Jesus I am I pray for those of us in this place Lord who do not yet believe in you Lord I pray that you would go to them right now would you minister to them would you help them to feel the realness of this hope love joy and peace Lord Lord I pray and ask those for those of us who are Christians in here but Lord who are doubting large doubts overwhelming doubts in our minds and hearts Lord, would you minister to us as well? Would you help us, Lord, to feel your presence once again? Lord, for those of us in this place who are experiencing deep hopelessness, depression, anxiety, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would come to them once again and remind them, Lord, of how real you are. Would you heal them, Lord, of their depression? Would you heal them of their hopelessness, Lord, and infuse into their hearts, their minds, their bodies, Lord, the resurrection hope that we have in you? Lord, we ask that in all these things that you might be glorified, God. Not that we might look better, but Lord, that you might look better. That you might receive all glory, honor, and praise, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.